I, I, I want to admit publicly on this show that I do not know what the word means. I, I, every time people say it, every time people say it, I smile and nod. I don't really know the definition. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by denominators. So have you both been following all the conversations on social media about the number of people who are hospitalized or infected who have been vaccinated while they completely ignore the denominators that most people in these populations are are completely vaccinated and therefore you would expect lots of vaccinated people to be the ones getting sick as long as it's lower than the percentage vaccinated than the vaccine is doing. No, am I the only one who's following this? Not only am I following it, I've had these debates with several people in my life who are anti-vaccination, anti-vaccination. Is it, is it, and is it as hard, are you finding it as hard to communicate as I am? I don't, yes. <laughs> I mean, I can't say how you're, you're feeling, but absolutely. I think I'm resigned uh, to just asking people questions at this point, instead of actually trying to give them opinion and let them talk themselves into a circle. I think that is absolutely, I'm going to do that from now on. I appreciate that <laughs> advice. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am extremely grateful to be joined by two fantastic guests today. So the first guest is Dr. Lori Dean from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome to the podcast, Lori. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I was so waiting, but... You. I realize that no one can see me. Waving does not come through as well on, on podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And our second guest is Dr. Dustin Duncan from the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. Welcome to the podcast, Dustin. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here as well. And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you find all kinds of interesting public health programs and tools. And also, if you can go onto your favorite podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher and give us a rating and tell us how much you love the show or any other feedback you want to give us, it always helps other people find the show. So let's get into it. So Today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we're going to look at a study on the relationship between white privilege, social position, and health. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about why it's important to study neighborhoods and their impact on health. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into things that just interested us or or made our day. So let's get into the, the first segment. And as I said, we'll talk about a study on the relationship between white privilege, social position, and health published in Social Science and Medicine. And it was entitled An Empirical Analysis of White Privilege, Social Position, and Health by first author Naoyo Kwate from the Departments of Human Ecology and Africana Studies at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. So this is a, a bit of a deviation from our, our normal approach where we look at studies that have recently come out. This one was from 2014, but I did go back and there were some headlines for the study. So I'll just read you a couple. One was from Health Medicine Net, which says how racism impacts the health of 
people who suffer abuse. And the conversation headline was, does racism make us sick? So, Lori, can you start us off by talking us through what this study is? And before you do, I should just say, this study is in, in social science and medicine, which I used to read quite a bit and over the years have have been reading less and less. And I have to say, going back to it, the way that articles are written in social science and medicine is so different than a lot of the epi journals. And I, I really like it. So thank you Same. for uh, to you both for, for reminding me of that. So yeah, Laura, if you could tell us what the study was about. I agree with you, Matt. When I read this, it felt very, very refreshing to read this in this format and to have a journal that really gives the space to talk about the context and the setting and all of these other principles that we feel like are really important for EPI. So I love this paper. And even though it is, it was published back in 2014, I think it's actually very timely for today, right? We're having this national conversation about critical race theory and what that is and what it's not. And I, I feel like reading and thinking about this paper just made me feel like it could have been written last year or it could have been written so even true. more recently. And it, I, I'm really excited. And one of the things I really loved about this paper was the boldness of these authors. Again, this was before people were talking about anti-Blackness. This was before people were talking about critical race theory. And I appreciate that they went in and they decided to try to measure white privilege. So yeah, before I get into the paper, I think it brings up two big questions for me, right? It's thinking about in EPI, we talk so much about measurement and the quality of measures, but how do we measure something that's very difficult to measure? How Mm -hmm. do we measure something that people might not want measured because it's politically coded? And some people don't even believe, for example, that privilege exists. Peggy McIntosh talks about privilege being an invisible backpack that people carry around. So how do you measure something that people don't even recognize is happening to them, right? If you don't realize that you're getting a better mortgage rate, for example, than your uh, than your neighbor or than the, the woman who, who has the house or than the Black neighbor that you have. So how would you even measure something like that? And I appreciate that they really attempted to do that in this paper. One final note I'll say about the timeliness of this is that the NIH has its first ever RFA for structural racism due in just a few days. So as many people that are, that are applying for this hopefully are thinking about these papers and some of this, this work, this body of work that has been done. So this is still really timely even for today. Mm-hmm. All right. So what did this paper actually attempt to do? Well, one, it was based on a previous finding that they saw better health among white people in areas where the disparity between black and whites was the widest. So they wanted to understand what exactly was happening and essentially had two ideas. The first idea that they called this hoarding idea, that in in places where the black and white health disparity gap was the widest, that maybe there was this hoarding by white persons to make sure that they had resources to guarantee that their better health. The other thing that they think about is whether or not there's some psychological relief that might happen for whites when they see blacks doing worse than them. So essentially that if you've achieved a certain level of health and particularly social standing, maybe that gives you a level of comfort about where you are and that essentially you've arrived where quote unquote, you're supposed to be at the top of the social hierarchy. And maybe that converts into some sort of health benefit or psychological benefit and then thereby a health benefit. 
So they took advantage of some settings in the U.S. where they felt like they could explore white privilege. And these are settings that are near and dear to, I think, all three of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Matt, you're still in the Boston area. Dustin I and I am. trained at Harvard School of Public Health. So reading through this paper just made me think about walking through those neighborhoods and the, the qualitative differences that you, you would see. And again, Absolutely. speaking to the credit of social science and medicine, they really gave them space to talk about the qualitative differences between these neighborhoods and how they've changed over time. I learned so much just about Boston. In reading this paper? Yeah. Yeah. I did. So for those of you who know the geography of Boston, they looked at three different Boston neighborhoods, all of which were predominantly white. So those were Back Bay, South End, and Jamaica Plain. And essentially what they were trying to do is look at neighborhoods that were predominantly white, but then had a range of socioeconomic position, even within those neighborhoods. So looking largely within one race, but then across various socio-demographic characteristics within those particular neighborhoods. Within each of those neighborhoods, they randomly selected households. I believe they selected 2,400 households to send surveys to. And those surveys asked all types of questions about the participants and that household's demographics, financial strain. They asked about subjective social status. So they used the MacArthur Ladder, which is a popular method in social epi for a self-assessment of someone's social position relative to the rest of the population. And they additionally asked about someone's social position relative to the neighbors that they live near in their respective Boston neighborhood. They also asked about how welcome people of other races. And actually, in this case, I think they only asked about Black neighbors, but they asked about how welcome Black neighbors would be. And then they assessed a couple of health outcomes, including self-rated health and dental health and happiness. I really appreciated that they thought about dental health. You don't hear about dental health, or I should say, I don't hear about dental health enough. I don't either. But it's an elective health care. And in many cases, in other countries, people aren't doing the extent of dental health that we do. But in, even in the U.S., it's still a form of elective health care. And I do think dental health speaks somewhat to a level of privilege that people have, right? If you can mm-hmm. afford the fancy headgear and the retainer and all of those things just to make your teeth straight, which, you know, in some ways can people would even consider cosmetic yep. beyond potential health challenges associated, right? It, in many cases, it's considered elective. So they asked these questions of households in those neighborhoods. They said they had a response rate of about 38%, which they noted later as a limitation, but I felt like wasn't a limitation because if you look at, for example, other well-respected surveys like the California Health Interview Survey or even the Briffis, those range from anywhere between 25 to about 45%. So I felt like they actually had a pretty robust response rate for a population health survey. So what did they find when they looked at these associations? And again, essentially, they were looking at the responses of the respondents across the socioeconomic gradient within each of these neighborhoods. So the first thing they found is that they expected that neighborhood health would follow in inverse gradient. And they said they did not find that. In fact, they said that the data did not support that hypothesis. The second thing they found was that subjective measures of social status and social position were more strongly related to self-rated health and their other outcomes than objective measures. And the final thing that they found was that for white residents who lived in neighborhoods where they perceived other races as welcoming, 
those white residents tended to enjoy better health compared to those who lived in areas where they perceived that Black people were less welcome. And in the end, they offer a couple of thoughts about why they found what they found. So one thing they pointed out that was interesting was that despite the fact that people felt that in some of these neighborhoods, Black people were very welcome, Black people did not live in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So it really belied what the truth was about those demographics, but felt that maybe perceiving that Black residents would otherwise be welcome actually made people think that they didn't have any white privilege, right? That there must be something else going on because Black people are welcome here. They just, for example, choose not to live here. Not that they're systemically or systematically kept out of my my neighborhood. So maybe it took actually some relief of them of thinking that they don't have this white privilege that this study was attempting to measure. The other thing that they found was that And this they found, particularly in Jamaica Plain, that perceptions of Black welcome actually didn't confer the health benefits seen in the other two communities. Mm -hmm. So in the area of Jamaica Plain, which is the one that they considered the most, I say, working class or the, the most lowest socioeconomic position, they actually didn't have that finding, which, again, mm -hmm. they felt supported thinking about that there's not only white privilege happening, but there's even potentially a gradient in white privilege that's happening where Neighbors that are neighborhoods that are very, very well off can see these privileges, but potentially that there's this interaction between privilege and socioeconomic position where the findings would be different. So in doing that, I, I really love that these two investigators pulled this together. The lead investigator, Nayo Kwate, is a psychologist. And Dr. Melody Goodman is a biostatistician. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited that they brought this paper together and brought this paper together under the umbrella of social epi, because I do think that they addressed something that social epi and epi in general feels like is important in thinking about counterfactuals, right? So they set up their analysis and their experiment so that they had these counterfactual neighborhoods of people who would experience white privilege across a certain socioeconomic gradient, ones that would experience white privilege and have high socioeconomic position compared to those who had white privilege and low socioeconomic position. So I, I think that's a, a fantastic summary of, and I will just sort of weigh in here just a little bit, just to say that I, I, I really liked the way this, this paper was done. I, I could say more about that later, but, but, you know, it's just, it, it's so different from, as I said, so many of the types of, of studies that I'm normally reading Dustin, what about you? What's your what was your take on this? What what was interesting to you? Oh gosh, I think there's a lot of th interesting things here. I think, uh, as uh, Lori said, I think one of the first things is the question. I think that we don't ask tough questions, mm -hmm. or we mm -hmm. we ask tangentially tough questions. If that makes sense, because I think that we perceive. I think that there's a measurement issue there, and I also think there's an issue of not wanting to make people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so I. This is just kind of Dustin Duck's opinions, but, but I, I think that um, they directly asked a really difficult question and a question that I can perceive that some people may feel uncomfortable with. Yeah. So I, I first laud them for, for doing that. And then secondly, you know, doing a survey like this across multiple neighborhoods, I, I don't know logistically how that was done in terms of like field work, et cetera, et cetera. But I can imagine that's really exceedingly difficult. So, you mm -hmm. know, as you know, I have a small cohort study of, you know, a couple hundred participants, you know, I was imagining all the logistics behind that and getting them, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that was exceedingly impressive. 
I have some kind of analytical other yeah. other things, but I, th- I think one thing that comes to my mind is like the selection of Boston, which I do think is salient and important. But one of the first things I think about is the the unique cultural norms that Boston has, and as mm-hmm. it relates to the findings. These findings, to me, at first I read them and I was a little perplexed. I was like, hmm, that's not what I would anticipate. And then I kind of reflected a bit and I said, actually, this kind of makes sense. Yeah. So I'll, I'll proceed to say what my perception of Boston is, and certainly it's painted with my experience living in Boston, you know, X years ago, et cetera. But from my perception, Boston's a pseudo liberal city. So what that means is I don't think, I think Boston really hides its racism really well, but differently. That said, you know, it's Southern in the way whereby I think people want to believe that they are not racist or they don't discriminate against people, et cetera. And so like the, the finding, for example, that they, that they are articulated as being unanticipated, but uh, that some white residents who perceive black families as welcoming enjoyed better health kind of made sense to me because I think that those people don't perceive themselves as racist. And so they're like, right. oh, we're not racist. So this is great. Right. But as I was reading that finding, I was thinking about Boston in particular. Right. And I was thinking, I question whether this would, and to talk a little bit of epi, but, but I question really whether this is generalizable across like nationally and across other cities. And in particular, I would, I would love to see this replicated across a number of cities, right? But especially places where there are different cultural norms. For example, places that are, I don't know how to frame this, so excuse me, but places that, are, that don't necessarily hide their racism or don't feel uncomfortable saying that like, hey, you know, COVID is not a thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and racism is ra- racism, you know, who cares? You know, black people are whatever people may believe. I, I think that these findings may be somewhat, and it's not a criticism to the authors, but more so just helping us think through the question. I think these findings are probably unique to Boston and or like the social norms of a given city in particular. But I, I really love the, the, the authors for the, the, the strong analysis approach. I agree with everything that Dr. Dean said in terms of the and everything. But I also think, as, as I'm assuming students will, will listen and, and, and reflect on this as well, is that, you know, I think this is a, a beautiful example of social epidemiology in practice, right? Because we specifically operationalize these kind of constructs that people may perceive as soft science. And literally, mm-hmm. I emailed mm-hmm. someone the other day say, oh, this is soft science. And I was like, well, this is just as hard as, you know, physics or my little brother's an engineer, engineering or whatever, whatever, right? And, and, in, and in some ways, I think that this is even harder to operationalize, right? Because we have to really convince our team and then external reviewers that actually we operationalize this construct of, for example, white privilege in these ways. And, you know, based on the, the theoretical and, and, and previous, you know, empirical literature. Dr. Duncan, I, I felt the same way about thinking about the generalizability of these results. You know, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. And central Pennsylvania is known for its racism, sad to say. It was, I, there were still Klan marches where I lived growing up. So racism was something that my family confronted every day in very blatant ways. And I think that even saying that something like my neighbors feel that Black people are welcome, right? You would not get such high endorsement of that where, in areas where I grew up. That's right. I had issues and my family had issues, in fact, with being told that we weren't allowed to live in certain homes. There were people told mm-hmm. who told me that I, they, I couldn't play with them because their family said that mm. they couldn't talk to black people. And I'm not that old. So <laughs> these things are still happening. Right. These things still exist. There is really blatant racism happening in many places in the country and in the world. And I agree. I wonder if they would have the same findings if they were dealing with a different group of people who 
weren't at a certain level of privilege. Now, granted, even though they did look across the privilege gradient, Boston is still a very high cost of living city. Yes. So are they still looking within a subset of people who are already very, very privileged? I mean, this is perfect. The Dustin and Lori show. Exactly. Like I was going to say the limited range, right? This is a certain subset of people, right? And so like these aren't necessarily... Privilege exists, yes, but these are higher privileged individuals, right? And so I, I believe and am studying and thinking about like oppression across the board. I believe that who oppresses people the most are are, are the, the, the the most oppressed, right? So I imagine I would like to also I'll frame it this way in terms of a new study. I would like to see this among a, a different subset of white individuals, particularly people who have a, a either a broader range. I mean, I could see it in different stories in my head analytically, but either a broader range of incomes, right, in terms of the neighborhood level or individually or both and or both and or a, a lower subset of a, lo- a lower uh, income or neighborhood set of, of, of white individuals. I think that the findings will pan out as the authors anticipated. Um, I think that these are are specific to the design and, and really specific to Boston for sure. I, I would I would just second all of those points. I mean, I, this just strikes me as something that will vary both from, as you say, across cities and and other localities as well, but also within cities and within populations within cities and and Boston being a, 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 a you know the kind of place where you I think you could you as you say repeat this study and find different things in different subsets of of Boston. That's right. So I, I'm curious what you all think of this. So so one of the things as a you know when you when you're you're growing up and you you learn about you know the scientific method, you're you're kind of taught this idea that you you come up with a theory and or or competing theories and then you you say what those theories would predict and and you 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 then test it out and you see which which of your two competing theories maybe is your data more compatible with or maybe it's just one theory and you're just comparing it against you know that's what you sort of taught growing up i find that in my work that really doesn't necessarily apply basically we you know you're sort of always testing everything against a a, a generic null hypothesis there either is an effect of something or there isn't this study is actually set up the way like it, it, it seems to me science is is supposed to work you have these two competing theories that would both predict very different things and then they go and collect data and find that they're you know one of these theories seems to hold up better now i i take it with all the caveats that it it may be very specific to the population but i i just find it really interesting that you know this is very different from the way we are normally going about trying to understand the way phenomena work i actually disagree oh okay go ahead I think the difference is is that they're explicit about the competing hypotheses and they're explicit about what they're doing. I think that in traditional epi journals like the American Journal of Epidemiology, we have to write so parsimoniously that it's all it's all implicit. So we may not necessarily know what the competing hypotheses are, and we may not be we're just often not explicit about it. And I think this is a, a really good example of being explicit about a hypothesis and the competing hypotheses. I think oftentimes in in science, we have hypotheses, right? We just don't necessarily make them explicit for many reasons. Maybe we don't know, we don't want to, maybe, you know, whatever the reasons may be. But I think this is a a good, and I I think Dr. Dean for choosing this article, but I think partly it's, it's a good example of strong social epi that's like really theoretically sound, right? And theoretically based. Yeah. 
No, I think I, I think you're probably extre- you know right on. I think I'm really speaking of myself here, where I, you know maybe what 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 you're saying, and I, and I probably would agree with this that it's it's really me who's not being very explicit. But I don't know that I think that the reason I'm often not explicit is because I don't I don't often know what what my alternative is. I, I you know and therefore I just don't express it very well. But but you're probably right. Yeah, it's a fair point. I was going to say, I think that some of that could also be due again to these authors. I mean, one, these authors are leading minds in science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Goodman just was named to the American Statistical Association as a fellow, right? I mean, she's at the, the top. And, and Dr. Quate is a psychologist. And this is something I see more in the psychology journals and the econ journals and the the sociology journals, that they do very clearly specify hypothesis and what analysis they did to test it. And then a disconfirmatory test, right? And they lay out their articles and they lay out their arguments in a really, really compelling way that I think in some ways we've lost in some of our scientific journals, especially the biomedical ones, but like, which, which like Dr. Duncan said, requires to be very, very pithy. <laughs> and we can't actually lay out all of those arguments and all the disconfirmatory evidence. So some of it maybe is a is something that we need to think about for our field. I I think I think you're right, and I and I think probably I'm I, you know expressing more about myself than than I am about the field in general. But I you know I I do think that there are that we would be better off if we were working in a way that is very similar to this. But I do agree with you. I mean, whenever I read papers from the the psychological sciences, they are they are much more like this, where you you know you have a theory that is well specified and you test it out. Whereas right. you know, often we're I in the work that I'm doing, I'm 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 not having I don't have a really good theory. I'm just, you know, testing out whether or not, you know, I think there is a, a relationship between things, hopefully in a in a causal way. But you know, I don't I don't I don't always specify that alternative. So I, I, I take that point. I, I actually think that we, I, I think you probably do have a theory. You mm-hmm. just don't articulate it to yourself enough. Sure. Quite frankly. Sure. And I'm only pushing on this because I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm a student, but I remember taking Nancy Krieger's class when she would really make us be so explicit about why we're studying something and, 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 and in particular be explicit about the, the theoretical grounding or, or, or basis and hypothesis behind their work. And so it's, it's kind of, I wouldn't say train me, but but did train me in a sense to to really focus on that. But I I'm absolutely sure that you have a theory. But I I think that w- what this also speaks to, and I think this is a, a good perhaps teaching moment for students, is that I think that we we are, we get so caught up on methods, and I am certainly a fan of methods, right? I'm a fan of thinking about appropriate methods for the creature's question. I'm a fan of thinking about causal inference and you know difficult things, you know, like with this kind of like neighborhood-based research, you know, randomizing neighborhoods and, you know, like really cool things, right? You know, my boss does some of that work and I'm excited by that. But I think that we get, I won't say too excited, but we may get excited at the method and our methods at the at the loss for thinking about the, the kind of why, the how so. I find that with my students sometimes, like, why is this even important? My students say, oh, I just want to answer this question. I'm like, but why? We're, we're, you know, we're really in applied science, you know? In in that way, we're not just doing this for science' sake, right? Totally agree. So 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 I actually think that we 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 as a, as a field do have the theoretical thinking. We just don't we just don't we're just not explicit about it. And I think it it, it may be like we're not trained to think about it enough. I I think that's exactly it. I I think we don't get enough training in theory. And and I, you mentioned Nancy Krieger, who who we've I've talked to on another podcast about it, about her you know book on theory and how much it you know reading it 
changed a lot of the way of my thinking because it, it just is not something that I had any training in, I think. That's right. Well, many times we're trained in, for example, health behavior theories, right? We learn about mm-hmm. Bandora, we learn about these other things, but we're not trained right. to think about things that are outside of human behavior that are just things about the way in which the world is structured. And those mm-hmm. are the That's other right. types of theories. Speaking of which, one of these things that this really prompted me to think about, and this goes back to all of these conversations that are happening about schools and critical race theory is, you know, is critical race theory the type of theory that we would recognize in EPI, right? Would we call it a theory? Would we Mm -hmm. say it's a framework? Would we say it's something else? And, you know, is it a theory that you try to test? I I don't see it that way. I actually see it as a framework. I think it's a lens for interpreting historical events in a different way. And I think that's something that people miss when they're talking about critical race theory. I think they they say, oh, if you're going to talk about slavery, that's critical race theory. That's not true. If you're going to talk about racism, it's critical race theory. That's not true either. It's about looking at historical events and thinking about the application and the undercurrent of whether or not racism was a driving force and how you interpret those events. So I see it a little bit differently than what we would traditionally call a theory in epi and say it's a framework. And I, because I, I maybe because I just don't know how I would test it in, in an epi study. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. That's a great point. Any, any, any last points anyone wants to raise uh, uh, on this article before we move on? So I teach a course where we talk about privilege and health. And I'm very curious as to what people think about in terms of measuring privilege. In this study, they did some objectives and subjective measures of social status. But again, mm-hmm. going back to this privilege being this invisible knapsack, I'm just curious if either of you have thoughts about other ways in which we might think about measuring privilege. How do you measure something that is potentially invisible to people? Do you have any thoughts or ideas? That's a great question. So uh, this is not, it, it's not an area that I have, I have spent much time on um I, you should have I, you all know. the answers right now i mean i've been thinking about this for years <laughs> and have come up with zero but you should know <laughs> you should know within the next five seconds okay i feel like you just you you let me off the hook there which i i appreciate but i you know i guess what i was going to say though is you know this just strikes me as measurement in general is so hard i mean just you know measuring simple count counting phenomena just being able to count the number of events that occur, we can't do all that well. The idea that we we are, are going to be able to really do a good job of measuring very complicated phenomena and in phenomena that people often, you know, certainly don't want to talk about or may not even know, you know, what they really think or believe is so is so difficult. So I, I don't have the answer. But I, I, you know, I think the, the more work on this, the better, because it is such a it is such a challenging thing to get at. Yeah, I, I guess you would anticipate that I would, given my back, my kind of initial doctor training in social epi, but, you know, I, I don't focus on this topic particularly, so I similarly don't have, I'll answer the question like a professor would, which is not answering the question, <laughs> but 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 some kind of thoughts and commentary. I, I don't have the answer, but I think that we should, it, it seems to me that there's a, probably a myriad of ways that one could measure this and that we should keep measuring it in different ways. Mm. And I like that. One thing that that I was thinking about, I, I don't have, I, w- I wasn't able to uh, review the articles that they cited. Uh, just a time limitation. But what I would like to see is like a, a, a theoretical piece on like different ways one could potentially measure it, or like a workshop or work group, or like a, 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 a what is it called? Like a not a working paper, but like a some type of standing document that that a consensus paper where 
kind of experts like like Dr. Dean come to and, and others who are on privilege scale you know, come together and and talk about like and brainstorm different ways. But I I think it, my sense is from reading this article and just generally is that that's probably that work probably needs to be conducted and or done. I w- I would completely agree. Great idea. Okay, so let's move on to our second segment where we're going to do things that is just a tiny bit different from the way that we normally do because I have the the privilege of being joined this episode by some really brilliant social epidemiologists, or I would consider you both social epidemiologists. I don't know if that's the category you would put yourselves in. I would. Yeah, yeah, of course. We absolutely would. I mean, I think maybe best on the planet might be, or in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I would say I'm the best, but in, in, I, I, I like thinking about social epi. <laughs> intergalactic. Funny. There That's we are. Funny. And so, you know, we thought we'd use this as an opportunity just to talk a little bit about a particular one aspect of social epidemiology that you both have some experience with and that I don't, so that we could sort of talk a little bit about a topic that I think is starting to, well, I think it's, 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 Getting, gets a lot of attention, but not probably as much as it should, which is the role of, of neighborhoods in health. And to just really get a, a talk to you both about your thoughts on neighborhoods and, and, and the role of neighborhoods in health. So just to, to kind of start us off, I mean, and Dustin, I'll start with you, but sure. can you talk to us a little bit about why we should care about neighborhoods when thinking about health and what you think the role of neighborhoods in health is? Okay, certainly I think I'm biased because I explicitly study neighborhoods. Sure. And so I, I, I genuinely believe in my personal and, 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 and professional life that neighborhoods are salient and you know important and have an enduring impact on health and many other things. But I'll say that I'll, I'll frame it in around COVID because I feel like I would be remiss to not recognize the worldwide you know, COVID crisis that's happening now. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to frame it in COVID. You know, I think COVID has taught me and demonstrated to us that what's around us matters, literally. You know, we yep. were in a period there, and some of us still are in, in terms of being self-imposed maybe, but where we are, quote unquote, sheltering in place or limiting our geographic mobility. Yeah. Caveat, obviously, that's not, there's significant heterogeneity in how people are responding to COVID, including mandated and otherwise geographic restrictions. Yep, yep. But for a period there, I would say a large swath of people, I'm keeping it intentionally broad, were limited to their homes and perhaps the immediate neighborhoods around them, right? And so literally, if you can't go to certain places, and I have friends who live in different countries where they couldn't pass the next administrative neighborhood unless they had a card or something. I'm thinking about one of my really good friends who lives in Italy, who's also a social epidemiologist. And so literally where you live determines what resources you have, Mm -hmm. quite literally, right? Yep. Yep. And I think that's just a good example of, uh, of, of highlighting that what's immediately around you really can impact you, right? In terms of what you can have access to. I think a lot of times people say, oh, well, you know, people eat a certain way because they just want to. And I think there's certainly some individual choice there. And I don't want to dismiss that, you know, but they're also and and, and some of those choices are are, are not necessarily only structural, but individual. So individual level stress. Right. But I'll I'll put on my social epi lens hat and say, like, if there's a, a large number of McDonald's around you. Right. 
Then there's a social norm to eat McDonald's, perhaps, right? Then there's a, a ease of which mm-hmm. and a, a myriad of other things. And so I say that to say, like, quite literally, I think neighborhoods really determine the what what we can access to. There are obviously many caveats, and we could talk about the many caveats and the measurement issues, and which I'd love to talk about. But I, th- I think it's quite clear that neighborhoods matter. I think moving forward, the, the part that's difficult is, is that I think we've done a really poor job in social epidemiology and spatial epidemiology in terms of thinking through, not being funny, but to harken back to what we talked about at the beginning, the theory, mm-hmm. and really embracing the complexity of how an exogenous neighborhood exposure can relate to this individual level health behavior or health outcome. I don't think we do a good job at that. I think we're starting to, and I think that we need stronger theoretical, well, I want to let Dr. Lori talk, but I think we need stronger I need to be, be explicit about our theory, but we need to be more comprehensive in our theoretical approaches. And certainly there are so many methodological challenges that I think that we're only now beginning to address. And there's so many we, which we can talk about, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and Lori, what about you? What for you is the you know, reason why you think it's so important to, to put our resources into studying the effects of neighborhoods on health? Similar to what Dustin was saying, I think that so much of what we think about in terms of our science has been about a very discrete exposure, right? But the world is so much more complex than that. And as Dustin was saying, the choices that we make are actually constrained by our surroundings, right? You can only do as much as is around you. And I think that's one of the key things that makes it important to understand neighborhoods. If we really want to understand, why we see the health outcomes, why we see the health behaviors that we see. We can't just look at the individuals because the individual doesn't really tell us enough about what's happening. I'd also say that, and I think the paper that we just read really, really showcases this and even talks more about why neighborhood context is so important. Our neighborhoods actually are a reflection of something about us that maybe Mm -hmm. is not as easy to measure as something you might ask, right? In this place, they use neighborhoods to talk about someone's relative privilege and relative standing, right? That might not be something I can otherwise see or tell you about as as an exposure, but we know and we've seen the studies that suggest that, for example, someone's zip code, or if you're a good epidemiologist, someone's census tract can dictate, you know, 10 years to 15 years difference of life expectancy, then we have to be looking at those other exposures and we have to be willing to potentially engage and think about what additional methods that we need to understand those mechanisms? I think those are those are really important points. I guess the the question would then be what do we what do we do with the information that we're we're generating on neighborhoods? How do we go from identifying the causal structures that neighborhoods by which neighborhoods play a role in health to finding ways to improve health? using neighborhood as, as either a framework or as the the unit on which we're we're trying to make those changes. Do you have thoughts on that, Dustin? I mean, I think that's similar to Lori's question on, you know, how do we measure privilege? You know, <laughs> and it's like this kind of, I won't say unanswerable question, but this just exceedingly difficult question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This may be less difficult to answer, but I think it's not clear at all. And honestly, I quite I quite frankly feel like I don't have the training to to know that answer. Mm. That said, I think it's important that we engage with communities, share our findings with communities, and get their thoughts 
on how to improve their own communities. I think that in science, we do a really good job, many caveats, but I think we do a really <laughs> good job of science, right? So thinking about, you know, Matt, you said a couple of things, thinking about causal inference, thinking about confounding, thinking about a measurement, thinking about, you know, the population, thinking about, you know, all of these science type things, which I think are obviously really important, right? But I don't think we do a really good job of the so what, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, you, we found these findings and we never in science say this exists. You know, we provided some nebulous language in this study, you know, maybe the cumulative evidence today, you know, those kinds of things. But we don't, we don't ever, we don't say like, you know, the ironclad, this is, a, this is the association, it's there, right? We don't, we don't do that. And I think that we, we don't do a good, a good job of thinking about how our science relates to the implications of other policy. We may, we may write, and this paper did, and many other papers do, the implications of the work, right? We may write a couple sentences and think about it. And I do think that we're thoughtful, but that's where it ends. And I think that we need to do a better job at, and these are outside my expertise, but of learning about implementation science, a better job of thinking mm-hmm. about how we connect with policymakers after we have the science, right? Yeah, those are kind of my initial thoughts, but I, I think it's I think it's it's we we and I think you know us as professionals, but also students need to get training in that. I, I really do. Or we're just going to keep doing the same thing we do, which is mm-hmm. you know learning how to do science, doing science really well, and producing more science. Yep. Learning how to do science, producing science well, and then you know and, and then this this cycle, which is which is great, right? I actually like writing papers and grants and you know coming up with research questions and thinking about the issues and blah blah blah. But ultimately, I don't want to just have a whole bunch of papers and I've done nothing in my life to improve someone's health, right? That's that's not why I I, 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 I became epidemiologist. It was really to think about how to improve people's health. I completely agree. Uh, Laurie, what about you? What are your thoughts on how do we how do we go from, you know, science to to improving health? So, Matt, I think your original question was a trap. <laughs> I think it was oh, an epi trap. An unintentional one, maybe, I but... think it was an epi trap because it presumed that we are coming at this from a consequentialist perspective, right? Sure. That we're doing sure. it because, you know, right. I guess, you know, someone, you know, there's a great paper, you know, is the well-defined intervention mm. assumption politically conservative, right? right. Do we have yep. to have a well-defined intervention in order for something to be worth studying or do we take I believe what people say is epistemological, epistemologic. I, I, I just want to admit, <laughs> I, I, I want to admit publicly on this show that I do not know what the word means. I, I, every time people say it, epistemology, <laughs> every time people say it, I smile and nod. I don't really know the, def, the definition. I'm not even sure if I'm using the right word, but I think that's the word. I think that's the word that people talk about, right? All that to say. Right. Do we have to have a does there have to be a consequence for it to be worth studying? And I I would argue, but no. However, Mm -hmm. I would also say that one of the reasons that I think we should study neighborhoods and why it is important is because these are things that are genuinely modifiable. I feel like so much of the work that has been done focuses on and, you know, God bless the geneticist. We need you. Right. But so much has been done on genes and other things that, from my perspective, are really probably not as easy to modify as something like someone's neighborhood or socioeconomic position. Yet all of the time, I feel like in nearly every grant application and paper I write is people say these things are not modifiable. But that's a very that's that's coming from the biomedical perspective. They're not modifiable by your clinician. No, they're not. 
but that doesn't mean that they we shouldn't be studying them and that doesn't mean they can't right. change or that they won't change right. or that they don't change right. we can modify them we just have to look outside of our traditional science our epi science and traditional science bubble at solutions that might not be scientific solutions in order to change them so uh, that sounds totally uh, totally right to me sorry I can I say one thing, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go just, ahead. To, just to push that point further, Lori, which I completely 100% agree with, and I think it, it was so well said, is also that we have to prioritize changing them. If we believe that every neighborhood can have a park, we can create a policy. I mean, I'm making this up on the spot, but that you know, every neighborhood, there should be a 10%, and I have no idea how this works, 10% of every neighborhood is mandated to have a park. It, it will be the case, right? We, we, we literally built neighborhoods. I don't, I don't think we prioritize the changes. And, and the, you know, solutions to public health problems are not always public health solutions, right? I think that's something that's to right. recognize, right? So Great building point. a park might not feel like the most public health solution, but I would, so here's where I would push back a little, Dustin. I do okay. think, right, though, if we are going to prioritize those things and say that funding needs to go there, I actually do think we need a very strong causal case, right? Because if we spend a lot of money making parks and in the end it was not the thing that was causally linked to, we'll say, someone's health, and we don't see improvements in health, then we've also expended resources that we didn't have to and not really solved the root problem. So that's the flip side, I would say. I agree. I, I definitely think that we, I, I think that we, I, we're, we're in agreement. I think that we need that. And I think that we do the good science. But all I think is is that I think we, we only think about and prioritize the science and we don't think about anything else. And I'm thinking of a student who's really great. But, you know, I, when I asked the question in, in their proposal defense, like, you know, why are you studying this? And they pushed them on the implications like, well, I just think it's really important. And it was just basically for the sake of studying something, as opposed to recognizing what you're studying actually has humongous public health implication. Mm hmm. Well, I, to be honest with you, I could I could continue talking about this for for quite a long time, but we are we are up against time, so I'm going to have to have you back so we can talk about this some more. But we do need to move on to our our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, where we just talk about some of the things that have been interesting to us over the past weeks. Laura, do you want to go first? Sure, mine is not going to be epi, but it, it will does, be about it, public that's health. That's probably a good thing. Which is that I am a big fan of short television shows. <laughs> you Ooh, know, there was that whole, okay. you know, that whole Quibi that I, I was like, "This is great." And Quibi never worked out, but right, this idea Quibi of short died television very shows, quickly. yeah, yeah. But I mean, right up my alley. I really like it. You know, sometimes I just want a, a mental break for a couple of minutes and want to watch something. Well, I still don't have my five minute t- TV shows because you know Quibi didn't work out. But I did discover a new television television show on Hulu, I believe. I think it's on Hulu and I'm not sure the original network called Reservation Dogs. Mm -hmm. And it's about this group of Native American young adults who live on a Native American reservation. And it's, it's made by, I think it's produced by Taika Waititi and it's cast and all of its, I think of the cast and all of the writers are Native American. And I really loved it because it just, opened up a different, opened me up to a different group of people who I I don't talk with or learn very much about otherwise. And I also like that the way that the show is set up, every episode has, it showcases a different part of Native American life. And the, after the pilot episode, I think the next episode is about the public health system on Native American reservations. And I just thought, I won't spoil it, but I just thought it was really fascinating to think about what happens when you have people who are American coming from outside and bringing health care and health 
you know, health resources and doctors and clinicians and nurses who aren't part of your community into your community? And what are the tensions that arise there? And how does that play out into the type of health that you get? Sounds like something we should we should all check out. I have to say, I, I haven't been able to to watch it because it's on Hulu and my uh, my my daughter subscribes to it. And for some reason, it uh, as of like two weeks ago, told, started telling us that we were not old enough to watch most of the things on Hulu. Ah. I don't know why. I don't know. why. Ah. One, Lori, that's like a good circle. I think I watched so much TV at the initial peak of the pandemic that oh, I too. almost have no interest in watching Netflix, <laughs> etc. So, I mean, sometimes I, I, I do that, but I'll say the thing that's fascinating to me, and, I, and I'm not doing a lot of reading about it necessarily, but just as I think about the world, is just how COVID has played, as, has, has, as COVID is the, the biggest social epi experiment of our times. And I think and I'm working on a project, which I, I won't share quite yet. It'll be done soon. Um, so I'll share it soon. But I, I just think it's fascinating. Every everything we everything we talk about in social epidemiology, we are seeing play out in COVID. Everything mm-hmm. we talk about, medical mistrust, oppression, gender, neighborhoods, you know, immigration. I mean, it's 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 quite fascinating to me actually. And when people say, you know, is this surprising to you in an interview? I'm like, no, it's not at all. It's it's playing out exactly as it should. Yep. So I, I, it's, it's obviously not exciting to see, uh, and certainly family members of mine have been impacted by COVID and, and, and friends in multiple ways. But it's it's interesting from a scientific perspective and particularly from a social epi lens to see it play out. And, and quite frankly, the story goes on, right? At least as of today. Totally agree. Yep. So I'll go second. So I was really interested in this article that was in Nature which talked about, I don't know if you all saw this article about how the Dutch university system has decided to remove the impact factor from their hiring and promotion decisions, hmm. which the reason it fascinated me was because it it never really occurred to me that the impact factor does play a role in hiring and promotion decisions. I mean, I don't think in the U.S. system we do it explicitly. We do it probably much more quietly in the sense that we look at the journals that people are publishing in. And, you know, I don't, as far as I know, in Boston University, nobody looks at the actual impact factor of the journals that you're in. But I, you know, I do think people have a, a sense for probably the relative impact factor. But they have made the decision to completely remove it from the hiring and promotion process. Now, I believe it's a, a specific institution. It wasn't all Dutch universities. But, I, you know, it just struck me as, an, a, you know, as we start to move into trying to get a better way of, of valuing the different kinds of works that academics do, you know, going beyond these these measures, which I think, you know, really don't appropriately convey the importance of the kinds of work that people do is, you know, it's really important. And so I would hope that, 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 you know, even if we don't use it explicitly in, in the U S systems, but we use it more covertly that we start to think, you know, very carefully about how we're using it and whether or not it really does play any kind of a a valuable role. So I I don't know. I don't know if either of you saw that one. I didn't see that, but I have heard that it's some, folks institutions for promotion, they actually do have to list their 
citation factor or, you mm. know, how on your Google Scholar profile, there's that, there's that little H factor, H index, right? You have to yep, list your yep. H index and those sorts of things, which I think is, is really mm. misleading, <laughs> right? I mean, oh, totally. yeah, it's really misleading. The the H index is a particularly weird one. I mean, let's say you even you want to you you know you you feel like there's this important metric that's out there. The H index itself takes no account of how long you've been publishing, how many people you published with, whether you were you know even played an important Second. role. So even that's if right. even if you don't want to abandon the idea, it, it, it's it's one that seems pretty pretty fraught. And it's based on ideology, right? That the, the, the journals that have the highest impact factor, as an example, are those tend to be those that are, to my knowledge, that tend to be most biomedically oriented. Oh, sure. Why is sure. that? I mean, we're implicitly saying that that matters more than, mm-hmm. like, why is NEJM, which is obviously a great journal, why does it have a higher impact factor than social science and medicine? Mm-hmm. I think social science and medicine has some really good articles. I, I think it's a I think it's a a point that needs to absolutely be considered in in you know, the hiring and promotion yeah. process that we don't want right. to simply reward these, 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 you know, journals that, and, and again, not to, I, you know, we, we read a lot of New England journal articles and, and they provide important information, but so does, Absolutely. as you say, social science and medicine or, or, or lots of other fields that don't get the same kind of visibility. That's right. All right. What do you got? What do you got so first? I, I think it kind of summarizes and brings us together. But I'm sorry, I just think about, I don't think of incessantly about COVID, but I just think it's fascinating. And I've, and, I, and it's not because of the spatial epi in me, but I just really have always been kind of fascinated by, by movement and mobility. Like, I think partly because my parents are both Caribbean immigrants and I think about mm-hmm. kind of how they came to this country and whatever. So it's, it's related. What I think about a lot now is just the tension, or I'll say the salience of ideology. I'll stop there, but especially the salience of ideology as it relates to science. I, I just really believe that like it's interesting to hear how much ideology shapes everything, including when we're presented with, I'll use the word facts intentionally, but we're presented <laughs> with facts, right? It's like, and I say this, not calling out anyone in particular and, and not bringing any attention to any particular issue, although lots and lots and lots of, of, of implications there. But I, I, I do think about that a lot now. And, and, and similarly to Lori, what she said, I think was just letting, asking people questions. I've just learned to let, to, to, to just listen. I think in this period of, of life, I mean, as well, I've, I've learned to be a better listener and to, to listen to people's ideologies and, and kind of their thoughts, because I really believe now that ideology kind of shapes everything. And I think enough people aren't receptive to different ideologies, including when facts or science back up those, those ideologies which is something that I don't think I ever thought before. Mm-hmm. I thought that, that science, and maybe, you know, I'm biased as a scientist, but science and facts would drive ideology. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was silly of me. Maybe that was silly of me, but I, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? I, I, I thought the same as it's you. Point. And I, it seems to me more and more we're, we're, we are actually finding exactly as you say, that it is the opposite, that ideology drives your entire belief system and which That's facts right. you choose to believe. That's exactly right. That's exactly, exactly right. And, I mean, and it also like, I mean, for the students listening to this, it also drives the kind of question. I mean, I feel so mm-hmm. Nancy Krieger-esque. But it, <laughs> I mean, which, which is an honor, of course, because she's so great. But it's brilliant. It, yeah. it, 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 I mean, completely brilliant. But it drives the, the questions that we ask, the way we approach the questions. And not only that, when we get the results, how we think about the results, how we frame the results, the implications we think. I mean, it's I don't think I thought about it 
in the past, at least not so deeply. And really, I, th- I think in my personal life, hearing different family and friends, really family conceptualize the pandemic and how they move and interact in the pandemic, right? And, and what people feel comfortable with and not. And ideology not meaning not a belief in science, but that could be a belief in religious systems and how religion plays into a pandemic, or, you know, et cetera. But it's just been fascinating to me, quite frankly. And I think this is a period where, of my personal life, where I've just done significant reflection on many things, but how just how people think. And I just, I don't think that maybe I, mm-hmm. I gave that enough thought before. I think that's, I think that's really cool. Well, I think that is the perfect place to end. I want to thank both of our guests, Dr. Lori Dean and Dr. Dustin Duncan, for joining me today for this conversation. That is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthEx, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or you can tweet Don at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www. Dot pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Cooler for sound and editing and having the radio voice to do fantastic voiceovers. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm-hmm.